Welcome to LPP, the Legal Privilege Podcast by Herbert Smith Freehills, where we unpack the tricky concepts of legal professional privilege and apply some key privilege principles to practical scenarios. I'm Bryony Adams. I'm a partner in Herbert Smith Freehills in Sydney Disputes with a background in large-scale and complex contentious regulatory enforcement actions and investigations, and including matters involving regulators such as Austrac and ASIC. Hi, I'm Harry Edwards. I head up the disputes team at HSF in Melbourne. I've got a background in class actions and regulatory enforcement matters for financial services clients, including proceedings and other investigations commenced by ASIC and, of course, in uh, London, the FCA. And I'm Hugh Painter. I'm a partner in the City Disputes practice and head up that practice. I'm a partner specialising in tax, corporate and finance disputes and investigations with a focus on the ATO as well as the other regulators we'll be talking about today. And hi, I'm Patrick Clark. As a competition partner, I focus on assisting clients engaging with the Australian competition regulator, the ACCC. So this is episode three in our series on legal professional privilege. In episode one, our colleagues gave a quick refresher on some of the key concepts of legal professional privilege and looked at some of the key things to think about when setting up an investigation. In episode two, we provided some more insights on questions around privilege that might come up throughout an investigation process. In this episode, we discuss how to maintain privilege in materials created as part of an investigation, both during and after the time that the investigation has included, and including where regulators or other third parties might seek access from us. And we'll also visit our scenarios around in-house counsel to see how they navigate through tricky areas of disclosure. So starting with some key principles, As we've talked about in our earlier podcasts, privilege protects confidential communications between the lawyer and their client that are made for the dominant purpose of providing legal advice or in anticipation of litigation. In Australia, that protection extends to communications and documents prepared as part of the investigations undertaken to assist in providing that advice so long as privilege isn't waived. But what happens when the investigation is over? There are often various stakeholders who want to access documents related to the investigation from police to regulators to auditors, as well as internal stakeholders such as compliance teams. I'll throw to Hugh to provide a recap now on the principles of waiver before we look at that in further detail. Privilege will generally be waived when the party which owns the privilege, in the case of an investigation, usually the company who sought the advice, acts in a manner that is inconsistent with the maintenance of confidentiality in the privileged communication. This can occur, firstly, intentionally or expressly. That is, when the client or their agent deliberately and intentionally discloses the confidential communications, usually for some type of forensic or commercial advantage. Or, secondly, impliedly, or sometimes imputedly, where the client or their agent may not intend to waive the privilege, but acts in a manner that's inconsistent with the maintenance of confidentiality in the privileged communication. There can also be a question of the extent to which such a waiver, for example, not just to the advice itself, but also potentially to associated materials. Generally, courts have said that where the gist, substance or conclusion of a privileged communication is published 
or communicated to a third party, particularly outside a confidential context, privilege in that communication may be lost. However, merely referring to the existence of legal advice is generally regarded as not inconsistent with the maintenance of confidentiality and therefore doesn't tend to lose privilege. Generally speaking, for privilege to be waived, the substance of the advice needs to be disclosed with some specificity or clarity. Where the line is drawn on the level of specificity or clarity can be difficult. So, for example, a public statement that, quotes, legal advice supported the party's position, end quotes, has been held to be a disclosure of the substance of the legal advice rather than its mere existence. The context will be important. It may turn on the nature of any advantage sought in the disclosure that was made. Thanks, Hugh. Um, now, what about, though, if in-house counsel have been asked to share some of the documents or conclusions externally? So that might happen, for example, if a regulator asks to see some materials or if the company has a reason for wanting to make at least some of the findings public. So there are circumstances where it's possible for privileged communications to be disclosed to a third party for a limited and specific purpose, provided that the third party is required to treat the communications as confidential. In those circumstances, there will be a limited waiver in favour only of the third party. One circumstance where a limited waiver might arise is in relation to disclosure of material to regulators. There are various reasons why a company might want to share information with regulators, including to hasten the investigation of a matter that's reported, to improve or maintain a regulatory relationship, to signal cooperation, to show due diligence if the company relied on legal advice and wants to explain its position to the regulator on that basis, or because the investigation deals with matters of a highly technical nature and it may be useful to provide the full factual context in order to assist the regulator's understanding. I'm sure there are others. I know I'm conscious in my own work that regulators are seeking more and more to persuade companies to let them see privileged material and the pressure that can be put on companies to allow that to occur can be pretty significant, including in terms of suggesting that doing otherwise will be seen as a lack of cooperation. So I might turn to the group now and ask what each of you are seeing in terms of the way that regulators are, are now talking to, to clients about disclosure of privilege on a quote unquote voluntary basis. Yeah, I might start, Brian, and I've got one pretty good example from a recent experience, which is interesting because most of the points you've just been through relate to circumstances where the company uh, under investigation might wish to um, voluntarily waive privilege. But the, the recent example I've got is where, in a very practical sense, the regulator was extremely keen to obtain the documents um, at even greater than the usual haste. And during the course of quite protracted negotiations about how quickly they would physically be able to receive those documents, were uh, quite bold in their approach to privilege and essentially said, well, you don't need to do a privilege review. We will just send back any materials which are on their face privilege. Um, which you've provided to us uh, at pace uh, and therefore having not done uh, the, the usual uh, kinds of review to weed out things that are, uh, are privileged. Now, obviously, um, that 
raises uh, some significant issues for the company, but it was an interesting example of a very practical uh, type of pressure that the regulators may seek to uh, place on uh, respondents to regulatory notices and the like. Yeah, that's a, a pretty clear example. I know, Harry, you deal a lot in the context of, of ASIC and APRA. Have you also seen just more sort of standard examples of using uh, ASIC's informal or voluntary disclosure agreement? And um, do you have any comments in that context? Yeah, the, the classic example uh, of the regulators like ASIC uh, seeking to put pressure on companies to disclose privileged materials where the company has very sensibly conducted its own uh, investigation and produced some kind of factual report um, which at least on its face is capable of being um, privileged and in circumstances where the, the company is engaging with the regulator um, at an early stage in their investigation uh, it is very frequent uh, that the expectation from the regulator is that uh, an investigation report ought to be shared with that regulator. And therefore, you will typically in those types of investigation uh, come up with the situation as to whether or not the document truly is privileged or whether there's separation that you need to put in place between the truly factual account of your investigation and whatever legal consequences that arise from that factual account. Uh, which one would uh, definitely seek to uh, try and retain privilege over. And what about you, Patrick, in the context of the ACCC? Yeah, look, there's been some very interesting developments in the ACCC, from the ACCC's perspective recently. For example, in May 2023, they've issued new FAQ guidance that sits alongside its cartel and immunity and cooperation policy. The ACCC has always required full, frank and truthful disclosure and full and expeditious cooperation as a condition of granting protection under those policies. But the new FAQ guidance expressly states that the ACCC expects all records of factual accounts to be provided, whether or not those accounts may be subject to a claim of legal professional privilege. The FAQ suggests that redactions of legal advice could be made, subject to the ACCC itself being satisfied that the claim is legitimate. So this raises some really difficult questions for claimants under the policy who are seeking the protection of it about whether they're going to waive privilege or how they're going to maintain it. For example, documents could contain mixed factual and legal advice, or there might be situations where the best factual account of the complex issues we see in cartel cases is actually been taken by a lawyer. There may also be an incentive to waive privilege over an internal communication that involves lawyers and so could be subject to a privilege claim where that communication contains facts that may directly establish the potential cartel conduct and so be of great use to the ACCC and in demonstrating cooperation. Interesting. And Hugh, what about you in the context of your dealings with the ATO or ASIC? So in relation to the ATO, this has been a hot topic recently. The ATO starts with the proposition that privilege claims can be made by taxpayers and those acting on their behalf. But in the middle of last year, after undertaking a long running consultation, the ATO issued a privilege protocol on how claims of privilege should be made generally in an ATO audit context. Now, the background to that was the ATO had specific concerns where there were advisors involved in a transaction under audit 
where those advisors may not be lawyers or acting as such, especially in in-house counsel and multidisciplinary practices such as the big four accounting firms. That protocol is in play, for example, where the ATO has concerns about the genesis for transactions undertaken. The ATO naturally has a concern if a transaction is undertaken for the sole or dominant purpose of avoiding tax, whereas corporates will generally point to commercial or non-tax purposes for their transactions. The ATO want to test those sorts of issues by asking for advice from tax advisors, and if those advisors are lawyers, then privilege is often in play, and hence one can get lots of questions from the ATO about what advice was received and from whom and that brings into play the protocol. On the issue of ASIC that Harry touched on, um, there is of course a protocol in place that ASIC has said that people can voluntarily disclose privileged advice that a company may have received. Um, the ATO don't have that, and the reason for that is because any information that's given to the ATO, they think that they can use to raise an assessment. So they can't pick and choose about what can be given to them and what, what can't, whereas ASIC's protocol countenances that situation. I've certainly been involved in one case with ASIC where it was a strict liability situation, so intent was not a, a defence or an element of the, uh, the matter, but certainly, and it was a very difficult decision, a decision was made by the company to disclose the legal advice that had been received prior to the relevant conduct, conduct being engaged in not because it meant that the offence wasn't committed because it wasn't an element, but because it was a part of the prosecutorial discretion that ASIC and, and others saying behind them should consider in taking the matter forward. So it's it has been done, but it's generally a pretty rare case when you're voluntary giving, voluntarily giving up your privileged advice to ASIC. And I would think just connecting with that, um, I've seen a number of regulators, in, in state-based regulators in particular of late, trying for a similar kind of regime than uh, ASIC has in terms of a voluntary limited waiver scheme of some description, including schemes that sort of purport to be for all documents forevermore, we agree to give you everything and this is how you'll treat it. Um, personally, those kinds of things make me very nervous, in part because um, assessing whether it's in your interests to give up the right that you have been permitted by Parliament to, to retain in a privileged sense needs to be considered case by case and whether it's advice that's being given that you don't want to share with a competitor versus advice at the very people that you're trying to keep it from are the regulators themselves. Uh, so I know it's it's definitely an area that more and more regulators are, are pushing hard into. There's obviously is a lot to think about before agreeing to provide privileged materials to a regulator. Harry, do you have any comments on the sorts of things that you would advise clients to consider before agreeing? Yeah, you're right, Brian. I mean, it's it's a big call uh, in 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 most situations, and the sorts of things that will be top of mind for um, in-house counsel and their their advisors in situations where you'd want to um, consider deploying uh, privileged material are number one, how to confine 
uh, that waiver appropriately and, and maintain control over how that information is shared, uh, primarily making sure that recipients of those materials have uh, a, a duty of confidentiality in that document such that they can't share it with people and risk that waiver being um, blown apart. Secondly, uh, really consider quite carefully the uh, unintended consequences of um, sharing that privileged material with somebody outside of the of the client uh, as properly defined. One obvious thing that which springs to mind and my class action experience really comes to the fore here is the potential for third parties like the class action claimant community and their litigation funding um, support um, seeking to gain access to that material whether it's through freedom of information requests or otherwise in support of potentially fishing around for grounds for bringing a claim and that is uh, a type of behavior we we see frequently um, being uh, sought to try and bolster at an early stage um, the level of information that those class action promoters have and try and address um, the obvious imbalance that they would otherwise have when trying to get a claim off the ground the third uh, key thing top of mind is be, be careful what you're actually setting in motion. Uh, next time you wish to take a, a, a contrary position and uh, strictly speak, uh, strictly hold on to the rights that you have to um, retain privilege in the material, what are the regulators going to turn around and say uh, when you've previously been happy to waive privilege over a document that you just so happen to be uh, wanting to use for a particular purpose? The precedent value uh, that you give the regulator in volunteering um, privileged material in one investigation may well come back to bite you in a subsequent one. For that reason, uh, there are certainly clients of ours who just have as a blanket rule, no matter how useful for the particular purpose um, a privileged document might be, they will not uh, voluntarily waive privilege in it. Um, and then the last thing to be really careful of, of course, particularly from a, a from a global business perspective, uh, is that privilege rules in different jurisdictions can be different or are different. Um, and you do run the risk of um, running a, a coach and horses through your privilege protections in other jurisdictions. If to any extent whatsoever, you give up the confidentiality in uh, the privilege material. So you really need to be thoughtful. Um, and aware of the consequences in other jurisdictions as well as uh, your um, uh, the consequences in an Australian context. Yeah, that's useful. It, what about, Harry, if we decide to go, we've thought about all of those things and we decide to go through the process anyway and provide documentation to a regulator that's privileged, what are your tips for minim minimising risk there? Yeah, two main uh, practical tips there, Brani. Um, the first one is uh, making sure that it's properly documented. Um, and Hughes mentioned the voluntary confidential LPP disclosure agreement that ATIC have available on their website as a sort of a ready reckoner for such an agreement. But essentially what you want to have in place is something that really tries to retain um, the confidentiality in the document uh, when it is provided to that other person. And you're very clear about the very limited and specific purpose um, through which it's being shared. And um, the other point is just making sure that, um, again, from a very practical perspective, it is properly labelled and clearly marked 
um, as strictly confidential and uh, continues to be legally privileged, just essentially to avoid that inadvertent uh, further disclosure of it by the person that you're sharing the document with. And what about if you've made a mistake and a privileged document gets sent to the regulator that you didn't intend to waive? Patrick, do you have any thoughts on that? Sure, look, it's a really difficult one. It, it should be okay where the substance of legal advice is inadvertently disclosed, but then immediate steps are taken to protect confidentiality once the error is identified. Here, the mistakes really need to be rectified in an appropriate amount of time. There's really no room for delay. So for example, where a privileged document was mistakenly referred to in an open hearing and cross-examination on the document had already occurred, LPP was taken to be expressly waived. And when you're dealing with it regulated context, uh, experiences can vary, but our experience when dealing with the ACCC is that they're very conscious of inadvertent waiver, particularly in the kinds of large document productions that they do receive. So they'll proactively look at document productions and will immediately isolate any potentially privileged documents that they find as soon as they're identified. Um, and that's really based on the labeling of the document, even if in fact, uh, you know, the client has made the decision that there's not a proper claim to be made in respect of that document, despite its, its label. All right, well, if we turn away from regulators now, another common scenario where we see companies wanting to provide privileged material to a third party is where an external auditor seeks access to the materials for the purposes of forming an opinion as to whether the company's financial report gives a true and fair view of the financial position of the company. Hugh, what do we know about how to limit waiver in that kind of example? Well, the starting point here is that if a, if a communication or advice is created for the purpose of giving to an external auditor, for example, as to the reasonableness of the director's estimate of a liability, for example, then a claim for privilege will fail. This is not because privilege has been waived, but because the legal advice was not obtained for the dominant purpose of giving legal advice to the client, it was obtained to give to the auditor and that's not a privileged purpose. Therefore, the correct approach is to consider what legal advice has already been given by the lawyer to the company. Whilst each case will turn upon its facts and circumstances, where a confidential legal advice to a company is created, and then that advice is disclosed to the auditor, where conditions of confidentiality and privilege are maintained, then this will not generally result in waiver of the confidential legal advice beyond the auditor. Similarly, where one company in a corporate group discloses privileged material to a group auditor, so long as advice and confidentiality are maintained when disclosing the communication to the auditor, the company does not waive privilege vis-a-vis -vis other companies in the corporate group. So what's important here is a pre-existing legal advice. That advice is disclosed to the auditor on conditions of confidentiality including restrictions on, on use. And sometimes it's a, well, a process is adopted whereby the auditor confirms that access is required as a matter of law under the Corporations Act for the purposes of their statutory audit, so as to bring in the principles not just of confidential disclosure, but a disclosure required by law. So turning then from auditors, 
In episode two, we looked at how our in-house counsel might deal with requests for regular updates on an investigation to be presented internally to board and senior management. But what about at the end of an investigation? How can the final advice or report prepared by our in-house counsel be circulated internally or referred to externally in a, a way that won't risk waiver of privilege? Patrick, I might turn to you. Do you have any thoughts on management of waiver risk for internal communications? Yeah, look, this is a really interesting one that we deal with a lot. As a general rule, privilege is generally less likely to be waived where legal advice is communicated within the company or between different entities that come within the same corporate group and including across government agencies. So long as the dominant purpose of the communication continues to be for the purpose of providing legal advice. And that's where we see more issues arise. However, as was discussed in episode two, circumstances where the risk of waiver become higher include where the advice is circulated for other purposes within the company, such as for the creation of lessons learned and roots cause analysis documents, or contemplation of controls in uplifts. Taking steps such as marking documents strictly confidential and privileged, ensuring that all communications regarding the investigation are kept on a separate legal file, and educating colleagues that advice circulated is not to be shared other than for a legal purpose by the lawyers who drafted the advice will really assist to limit the risk of waiver. And Hugh, we spoke before about how you might provide the report to a regulator or an auditor. But what if you want to share findings with another third party who's also interested in the outcome of the investigation? Yeah, we'd see this uh, on potentially two levels, Brani. The first may be like the auditor example, where there is a confidentiality regime in place and where there's disclosure of advice, typically in a one-way direction. So that's a disclosure on a confidential basis. The, the other level that we'd look at is potentially establishing a joint engagement or a common interest protocol type situation to permit that interaction to occur. Often this is both information flowing both directions rather than just one direction. There are recognised categories of common interests, but those categories are not closed. But we often see this between indemnified and indemnifier, so or insured and insurer and sometimes with directors and companies. And the protocol that's established seeks to document the common interest between the parties and the confidentiality of the communications between them, so to, as to allow privilege to be maintained and communications to flow. In addition to situations of limited waiver, there can be reasons why a company might want to announce the results of an investigation publicly. So say our in-house lawyer's investigation has somehow found its way into the media and reports have been written about possible fraud in the company. The investigation report has in fact found that the allegations were made by a disgruntled former employee and the investigation found no wrongdoing. That might be something that the company would actually want to go public with. Harry, what would you advise here? In short, exercise great caution. Um, and that's because making full or partial disclosures of information or documents to third parties, such as the ASX or to shareholders, may result in a waiver of legal professional privilege. And any such disclosure really does need to be treated with great caution. I can understand absolutely the 
uh, how tempting it would be to wish to respond to such a public um, set of media with your clean bill of health. But the bottom line is uh, you really do need to be sure that it is a clean bill of health in order to go down that route. And that's for this reason. You're really running the risk of the nice, clean statement that you hope to make, which is one conclusion that's contained in the privileged material, essentially inadvertently waiving the remainder of the legal advice, which may contain things that aren't quite the clean bill of health that you would like to rely on in uh, deploying it in this way. And there's a couple of recent decisions which are worth just touching on briefly, which just go to show how finely balanced um, the assessment that the court will make in terms of waiver uh, might be, and that it really is quite a, an, a detailed and analytical exercise to work out the risks here. So a recent decision in uh, the Terracom case, the federal court found that a company had waived privilege in a report prepared by PwC when it disclosed the conclusion of the subject matter of the report in a letter to its shareholders and in an ASX announcement. Even though those disclosures only contained limited parts of the report, they were found to waive privilege in the entirety of the report on the basis that the limited disclosures could not be correctly understood without reference to the rest of the document. There are examples that have gone the other way and waiver may not occur, even though there has been a conscious disclosure of the gist of advice in the context of keeping the market and public informed. So in a press release uh, issued by the Attorney General for Victoria, which is, was expressly referred to in the legal advice received, that was found not to be a waiver in circumstances where the court found that the purpose of the disclosure was to satisfy the public or members of parliament that the chief minister had acted responsibly and in accordance with legal advice. In a corporate context, there was also no waiver found when a company said that it had received legal advice that it had no liability whatsoever in its notes on contingent liabilities where the disclosure to current and potential shareholders and creditors promoted the integrity of the accounts and market transparency and in circumstances where the disclosure had given it no advantage in the underlying litigation but i mean what these cases show Brian is that really very careful and uh, considered thought needs to be given every time that kind of opportunity arises. And ideally if you know in advance that it's something you might like to do you can set things up in such a way as to mitigate uh, risk. Hugh do you want to give us some tips on how that might work? Sure, Brian. If we think that there's a prospect that advice may be disclosed, for example, to a regulator, it's important to first make sure the advice is actually being sought to advise the client. Advice that is being sought to hand over to a regulator is not a privileged purpose and therefore won't be privileged in the first place. But assuming that there is an issue about a privileged legal advice being given to the company and about whether we're going to give that to a third party such as a regulator, then you'd want an advice and the instructions uh, which procured the advice to be in a form that can be disclosed. And that's, that is, does not lead to an implied waiver of associated material. Essentially, this is usually done by having the advice and the instructions being freestanding. There's no reference to any other related or associated material to call into question the sorts of issues that 
Harry talked about in terms of associated material, which may also need to be had regard to in order to understand the advice that has been disclosed. Well, that brings us to the end of this series on privilege in investigations. We hope that you've enjoyed it and thanks for listening. You can find more resources on our Legal Professional Privilege in Australia online hub at hsf.com and you can listen and subscribe to more HSF podcasts through your usual podcast platform.